Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There are two teams warming up to face each other in a stadium in Detroit. Both of them are made up of black high school students, joking and jostling with each other on the side of the field. Started playing baseball around, I'd say three. I played t-ball with my dad, and I just went on from there. This is Jacoby Radcliffe. He's 18 years old. He's actually built a little like my grandpa. He's at least six feet tall and has that same slim frame. But the most noticeable thing about him is his confidence. My walkout song? Okay, it's this song. It's called Outside by Mo3. It's a great song, by the way. Jacoby is about to play in a tribute game for the Negro Leagues. So he and the other players are decked out in the old-timey uniforms. Jacoby is wearing the Chicago American Giants signature gray jersey with bold red lettering and socks pulled high. And this game is one of his last with his youth team. I graduated high school June 7th. Um, in the fall, I would be t- attending Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm on a baseball scholarship and academic, too. It's very difficult because you had to go to a showcase to perform in front of a lot of scouts, and the scouts have to like you in order for, to offer you. So it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge because there was a lot of good dudes there. It's hard to stay inspired, to keep training to be the best. But when you see someone who looks like you doing what you want to do, it makes your dream feel possible. For Jacoby, that's what happens when he sees his favorite player, Padres outfielder Juan Soto. Like Juan Soto, he'd do like this, this shuffle. And I was like, when I first seen him, I was like, yeah, I'm doing it. You, because it's really intimidating the pitcher. They want to throw at you. That's a free base or throw a fastball in. And I just, you know, hit a home run or a double. You know, so it's really a win-win situation for me. So. What baseball gives Jacoby is what I imagine it gave Grandpa Turkey a hundred years ago. And knowing that he paved the way for players like Jacoby makes me feel proud. I could be anybody who I want to be on the field. It makes me feel like I'm alive. There is, in theory, nothing stopping Jacoby from getting into the majors, from being the next Juan Soto, if he wants to. There's an easy story that people like to tell about the Negro Leagues, and it goes like this. Players like my grandfather endured all that mistreatment and discrimination so that one day players like Jacoby wouldn't have to. They would get the chances their grandfathers were denied. But the truth is, even now, 
can we honestly say that the space for Black players like Jacoby is as big as the space for white players? People think the Negro Leagues is a story about the past, but it isn't. The Negro Leagues are part of the story of Black baseball today. How we handle the legacy of past injustice is how we write what comes next. Because those injustices, they haven't been answered for. And now, the soul of the game hangs in the balance. From ABC Audio, this is Reclaimed, the Forgotten League. I'm Vanessa Ivy Rhodes. Episode 6, A White Man's Sport. After 12 o'clock, is that okay? After 12, after 12 or 1, 1 o'clock, is that okay? All right, we'll, we'll save your side. What size do you need? While Jacoby is warming up inside, I'm out front handing out T-shirts. I'm a board member for an organization called Friends of Historic Hamtramck Stadium, which is where the game is being played. So I'm here to watch it and spend a little time with family and friends. Okay, Nick, can you deliver some chairs with a first-base canopy? Deliver um, two of the wooden chairs if you can. This is my friend Gary. He's the founder of, well, hold up, I'll let him tell you. Gary Gillette, uh, founder of the Friends of Historic Hamtramck Stadium, 2012, Bon Vivant, Man About Town, Raconteur, Flaneur, uh, not gainfully employed. I've been working on this project for 12 years now, and it's such a joy to see it come to fruition. Do I look excited? I am very excited. I'm very, very happy. This project that Gary has been working on is Hamtramck Stadium. Today, we're doing a rededication of historic Camp Tramick Stadium, first opened in 1930, rebuilt in 1941, closed 1997, and it's been rehabilitated according to historic preservation standards, and we're reopening it today with the tribute game to the Negro Leagues and to one of four living Negro League players still in the U.S. We've renamed the field in honor of Turkey Stearns, Hall of Famer and Detroit Stars, great. So the full name would be Norman Turkey Stearns Field at historic Camp Tramick Stadium. That's a mouthful. Hamtramck is a great example of how protecting the future of the game is about understanding the past. There will be a ceremony before the game honoring 96-year-old former Negro League player Ron Teasley. After that, Jacoby's Chicago team will play their opponents, a Detroit team dressed in Grandpa Turkey's old uniform, the Detroit Stars. This stadium is where Grandpa Turkey played some of his best years on the Stars and where so many other Negro League greats showed what they could do. Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, they all played here. The thread from the past to the present was broken, but with this stadium, it has been restored. Making that connection was important for Gary Gillette. I've been a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, a nonprofit, since 1983. Gary says he always had an interest in ballparks. He even wrote a book about them. 
So, and I did a really huge coffee table book that if you dropped it from five feet would kill cats and dogs of less than 20 pounds easily. It crushed them instantly. I mean, it's just a huge book. Um, While looking into Detroit ballparks, Gary found research about Hamtramck Stadium, but not very much. Gary has worked hard to fill in the blanks of the story. When originally built, it seated about 9,000, maybe another 1,000 or two in bleachers. Uh, in the early 1970s, to save money on maintenance, the city cut the grandstand back on both wings to make it smaller. Uh, it, at that point, would have seated about 2,500 in bleacher seats. The fire marshal put up, the Hamtramck fire marshal put up a capacity sign a couple days ago saying maximum capacity 1,050, which says something about our spreading butts or cheeks or hips. I guess you can edit the butts out, right? The stadium is about four miles from downtown Detroit, 10 minutes away from Comerica Park. It's right in the middle of the Hamtramck neighborhood. And there's a railway line that runs impossibly close to the southeastern edge of the bleachers. And uh, I know other ballparks, and particularly Negro League parks, that were located near train tracks had troubles when the trains would come by. And allegedly, sometimes the engineers would stoke the engines and throw out a lot of soot to interrupt the game. And so my theory is Clouds of soot or not, thousands of fans packed the grandstand to watch players like my grandfather excel. These stadiums were the centers of communities. But after integration, across the country, hundreds of stadiums that had once held the roaring crowd fell silent and then fell down. And since Negro League stories had disappeared from public knowledge, no one even knew they should be saved. Hamtramck is rare. It's one of only five remaining Negro League ballparks left in the country. There's Rickwood Field in Birmingham, Alabama, Hinchcliffe in Patterson, New Jersey, J.P. Small in Jacksonville, Florida, and League Park in Cleveland, Ohio. That's it. And sure, you might say teams move around all the time in baseball. Stadiums closed and are rebuilt. Look at Comerica Park. It replaced the old Tiger Stadium in 2000. But Hamtramck's stories and history never got a new home. It was left to rot. Some vagrants and kids had set fires in the grandstand, so there were holes in them, charred holes. Uh, you had to watch where you were walking because you could step into a hole and your leg could go through. You could still see the outline of the pitcher's mound and home plate, where home plate would have been, and the base paths, but they were overgrown with grass and weeds. Uh, By the time Gary rediscovered Hamtramck in 2008, it was fenced off. Anyone on the grounds would technically be trespassing. But by now, you can probably guess that didn't stop Gary. I was here a hundred times from 2008 when I first visited it until they started working on it. I was never here once where there wasn't a hole in the fence that I could walk through. I never made a hole in the fence myself. I just walked through somebody else's hole. And so there were kids in the grandstand. The stadium looks so good now. The roof is new and there's fresh pine on the bleacher benches. 
Gary wanted to restore this place and its history. He's done that. But he also wanted to give kids in the city a place to play. There's fewer green spaces in Hamtramck than in most cities in America. Fewer parks means fewer diamonds. But Gary noticed that restoring participation, that's harder to do. Nobody plays pickup ball. I have never seen anybody below the age of 25 on this field playing catch just to play catch. That old baseball adage, if you build it, they will come. Gary's finding out that it isn't that simple. And what he's noticing locally in Hamtramck is something that's happening across the country. Kids aren't playing our national pastime as much as they used to. And there's one group that's particularly impacted by this. Black youth. Professor Earl Smith is a sports sociologist at the University of Delaware. He's been studying race and race relations for over 25 years. But before that, he was just a little leaguer who loved the Yankees. I grew up in New York, and um, there definitely were neighborhoods that were, quote, white only. But I can't remember thinking that baseball was a, a white man's game because I'm in the era right after the cherry picking of the Negro Leagues, and they had to be stars. They were larger than life. So I don't think I ever saw it that way. Um, in fact, it took me a long time to get to the realization that Blacks were not playing baseball. Earl and I have both heard theories for why this is. We don't really buy them. The person on the street who doesn't know much about these things, they'll say, oh, you know, baseball is too slow. You, you know, it's like watching paint dry. People want to razzle and dazzle like Michael Jordan. People who said this, they actually might have been talking about me. I was that kid in the 90s wearing the Jordan jersey. But yeah, I've heard this one a lot. Michael Jordan was just so cool that he tempted Black kids away from baseball. And so the theories that I've seen over the years were exactly those kinds of everyday thinking, not carefully thought through. Maybe these young men just don't want to play baseball anymore, when in fact it's much more complicated than that. If you've been listening over the last five episodes... This might seem like a mystery. We've talked about how baseball was a fixture in Black communities before integration. And then after the color barrier was crossed, Black stars started to be seen and recognized by white institutions, like the Hall of Fame. But now, young Black players are turning away from the game. Why? Imagine you're a Black kid growing up today. You love baseball. You're like Jacoby Radcliffe, obsessed. You've got posters on your wall and a full fantasy team roster on the tip of your tongue. But there's one issue. Most of the players don't look like you. In 1947, the year Jackie Robinson walked on the field for the Dodgers, less than 1% of MLB players were Black. 
By 1981, Black representation in MLB reached its all-time peak. Almost a fifth of all players were Black. So where do you think that percentage lands today? 20%? 15%? Well, on opening day of the 2023 season, only 59 of 945 players were Black. That's just over 6%. The odds of seeing a Black baseball player on the diamond were higher in 1956 than they are today. Now, if you're wondering if this is the case across the board, let me give you some extra context about other sports in America. The NFL and NBA both had periods of segregation, too. They were much shorter than baseballs. Both of these other sports now have an overrepresentation of Black players. The trend since their integration has shown numbers of Black players increasing over time, with no drop-off. So what's going on with baseball? This is going to go into like a whole like maze of stuff. Okay. This is Marissa Kiss. She works at the Institute for Immigration Research at George Mason University. And Earl Smith was one of her dissertation advisors. Together, they wrote an op-ed for the Philadelphia Inquirer that tried to answer this big question. Why aren't there more Black American baseball players? We wanted to highlight the demise of native-born African-American players. That was one thing that was, what did we call it? The Colony and the Country Club. The Colony and the Country Club. You can no longer say that baseball is part of the American dream. You know, Major League Baseball now is really a story of the haves, you know, and the have-nots, really depending on your citizenship immigration status, and also your race. While Black American participation in baseball has been going down, there's been an increase in MLB players born overseas, specifically from Latin America and the Caribbean. This increase in players born overseas, that's the colony part of their op-ed title. It began in the second half of the 20th century, when Major League Baseball discovered it could get talent for cheaper from Latin America and the Caribbean. During the 1970s, MLB teams such as the Los Angeles Dodgers and Toronto Blue Jays started to send scouts down to the Dominican Republic to recruit and sign caliber players. Um, Soon, all MLB teams started academies in the Dominican Republic. They filled them with hundreds of young players and built them into future MLB stars. Recruiting like this is cheaper, and it allows teams to get around some of the regulations of attracting and training young players. For example, players who are born overseas are not required to have a high school diploma or a GED to compete. American-born athletes aren't allowed to play without one. So some players in the Dominican Republic, they're recruited as young as 12 years old. You know, they're really taken out of school. They're taken away from their families. And this pipeline, it's allowed MLB to continue to recruit, um, develop, and evaluate the play of not like one or two kids, but hundreds of young players. 
if they're not signed by an MLB team, um, they're just left now 16, 17 years old, didn't finish high school, don't have a job, and there's another kid to take their spot. The academies are a way of casting a wide net in a talent pool. There are plenty of players who won't make it, but the very top players might be lucky. 24% of MLB's players in 2022 were born in the Caribbean or Latin America. They are some of the best players in the majors, including the player Jacoby Radcliffe admires most. Juan Soto um, and Victor Robles both came through the Nationals Academy um, in the Dominican Republic. They were both signed when they were 16 years old. Um, That's the minimum age limit that MLB teams are allowed to sign foreign-born players. Many players who were born in the Caribbean and Latin America are Afro-Latino. So this system does put black and brown players in the majors. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Earl says it also does something to our perception of who's being represented on the field. I see players come from Cuba. Uh, They look like me. And there's good reason why. But, you know, for simplicity's sake, they look like me. Um, Another player could come from Colombia and look like me. So whoever is collecting the data for whatever source, sports writer types, uh, they just look out and they say, oh, that's a black player. Last year's World Series, for the first time in 70 years, think about this. This is the quintessential game. Not one player on both teams was a native-born African-American player. Not one. First time in 70 years. That's deep. If you've been listening to this thinking, hey, what about Ken Griffey Jr. or Ozzie Smith or Derek Jeter? The list of greats of the past goes on and on. There's great players out there, great American-born Black players. The point is, nowadays, there's not as many as you'd think. That's because in the U.S., there's a different system at play to get yourself noticed by MLB. The trouble is, it's one that gives some players an advantage over others. That's the country club part of Earl and Marissa's research. Here, a kid's shot at playing in the majors is all about being noticed by scouts. And to get noticed, it isn't enough to play in your local ballpark. Because what are the odds that an MLB scout is just going to happen to show up at your game in Lansing, Michigan, and be so impressed by that double play you did in the second inning They're going to invest time and energy to keep following you. That would be like winning the lottery with a single ticket. Not impossible, but not likely. But there is a way around these bad odds. So, you want to be the best? So does everybody else. That's an ad for the IMG Academy, part of IMG Worldwide which runs the IMG Models Agency. At IMG Academy, parents can send their kids to play sports and basically guarantee that they will be seen by scouts 
at talent showcases. In the 1990s, showcase events like IMGs sprang up all over the country. One, called The Perfect Game, has become the dominant force in predicting major league success of players, foreign and domestic. In 2021, 95% of MLB draft selections had played in a perfect game showcase. It's like buying a whole reel of lottery tickets. The chances against you are still huge, but you've got a better chance the more money you spend. There's an obvious problem with that, right? Um, So in 2019, I saw that it was about $650 for parents to pay and up to $3,500 for their child to compete on travel team going to perfect game events. And then some other families may spend anywhere from $500 to $2,500 per year and sometimes up to $4,000 per year for their kids to play on travel leagues. And think about it. I mean, these kids are playing on these travel leagues from the age of nine through they turn 18. So these yearly expensive over a course of nine years definitely adds up. It does add up to tens of thousands a year. IMG and Perfect Game have both said they try to help young athletes who can't afford the top price bracket experience. But it's not just the perfect game or other travel league costs. There's fewer scholarships available for aspiring collegiate baseball players than for football or basketball. Even playing in your local little league involves buying equipment and somehow getting to games. Then there's private batting coaches, which Marissa says can cost hundreds of dollars. There's websites where you create profiles to make yourself more visible to scouts. And even those require membership and subscription fees. The costs of playing baseball, even from a young age, have been going up and staying up. And what if after all this, you still don't get signed? Increasing opportunities costs money, but it also costs time. Two resources that many Americans don't have to spare. And in particular, Black Americans are less likely to be able to participate. The median Black household has 10% of the net worth of a white one. Black Americans earn 30% less than their white counterparts. So in a system that favors those with disposable income in the tens of thousands, who will be more likely to succeed? You know, what it comes down to is where MLB decides to invest their money. MLB has been making over time clearly large financial contributions to players born outside the U.S. in the Caribbean and Latin America and not so much investing in individuals and youth who are, you know, low-income Black and, you know, white players in the United States. All that being said, over the last few years, MLB has funded showcase programs to help Black kids break into baseball. There's one called The Dream, where ex-major leaguers like Jerry Manuel coach kids for a free four-day series. There's another called RBI, which stands for Reviving Baseball in Inner Cities. MLB told ABC 
it's spending millions of dollars trying to bring new Black American players into the sport. Many of their talent development schemes are low cost or free. And there appears to be tentative signs of improvement. Almost a fifth of the top draft picks in 2023 were American-born Black players, many of whom were graduates of these MLB-funded programs. It makes sense that MLB would want to shake things up. Generationally, we've seen a shift in who's watching the sport. Baseball has been replaced by football as the most watched sport in America. MLB needs fresh eyes and young fans to have a future. And in an increasingly diverse country, your sport should reflect its audience, right? And whatever changes MLB have been making, they haven't been enough so far. But maybe this is something else. Maybe this is MLB reaping what it sowed all those decades ago and keeping Black players out of the game. Because the color line that kept the majors white was crossed. But it was never erased. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you'd do with an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, or maybe show up for a friend? We often find ourselves wishing for more time. But the real question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The key to squeezing that special thing into your schedule is knowing what's truly important to you and making it a priority. That's where therapy comes in. It's not just about dealing with problems. It's about finding what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you've tried therapy, you know how beneficial it can be. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's a tool for learning positive coping skills, setting boundaries, and empowering yourself to be the best version of you. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part? You can switch therapists at any time at no additional charge. So whether it's finding that extra hour for yourself or embarking on a journey of self-discovery, therapy can be a game changer. Take the first step with BetterHelp and make your mental health a priority. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Reclaimed to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Reclaimed. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need and the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. In 2016, there was a cultural moment that forced a collision of two worlds, American sports and social justice. It happened in the NFL when Colin Kaepernick took a knee during the national anthem to protest racism and oppression. It was controversial, but soon he wasn't alone. On the Seattle sideline, it wasn't just players, but coaches, employees, even fans following suit. Back in MLB, a Baltimore Orioles player, Adam Jones, looked at baseball and couldn't see a single act of solidarity in the sport. It told him, a Black American, that baseball didn't care about alienating its Black players. He felt expendable, disposable. In an interview that year, he told a journalist, Baseball is a white man's sport. Baseball's root is incredibly racist. So it's very difficult to shake something out of a system. It doesn't. Shakia Taylor, a sports and culture editor at the Chicago Tribune. So I agree with Adam Jones completely. Even if you look at the fan base, you know, the average baseball fan once upon a time was a 55 year old white male. So if everyone running it, is a white guy and everyone watching it is a white guy. I mean, how can he be wrong? Shakia says there's been a kind of atmosphere in baseball that shaped the game today. In previous decades, this has been seen by some fans as traditional. She sees it as a way of maintaining a certain status quo. People within baseball get upset about home run celebrations and players wearing jewelry and backwards caps. And they take a lot of the joy out of the sport with the rules. Um, There is an unwritten rule where if a batter hits a home run and celebrates it a little too long, that he is then hit with the ball on his next plate appearance, which is absurd. It is absolutely absurd. But things like that keep African-American kids out of the sport. Uh, Culturally, I'd say, you know, we like to celebrate. We like to have fun. And if you take those things out of the game, you're going to lose interest. The exuberant showmanship that typified the Negro Leagues, Shakia says is not welcome in MLB. And that atmosphere is still felt today. In 2021, an MLB announcer joked about the clothing of then-Mets pitcher Marcus Stroman. What clothing did he choose to joke about? His do-rag. It's another form of the gentleman's agreement. Unwritten rules about what kind of player you can be in the majors. And historically, that has even affected which position Black players are assigned. 
I think across sport, regardless of the league, there's always been a perception generally that is rooted in racism, that African-Americans are not as smart as everyone else. And it's incredibly pervasive in positions that people consider to be like thinking man's position. In football, that would be the quarterback. In baseball, that's the pitcher. And sometimes the catcher as well. This doesn't just apply to players either. This kind of thinking has an effect at the managerial level, too. It's a tough question for you. You're still in baseball. Why, why is it that there are no black managers, no black general managers, no black owners? Well, Mr. Koppel, there have been some black managers, but I, I, I really can't answer that question directly. The only thing I can say is that you have to pay your dues when you become a manager. Uh, generally, you have to go to minor This is Al Campanis. He's white. He's an ex-Dodgers second baseman. And during this 1987 interview with ABC's Nightline, he was their general manager. He was also a close friend of Jackie Robinson. You know that that's a lot of baloney. I mean, there, there are a lot of black <laughs> players. There are a lot of great black baseball men who would dearly love to be in managerial positions. And I guess what I'm really asking you is to, you know, peel it away a little bit. Just tell me, why do you think it is? Is there still that much prejudice in baseball today? No, I don't believe it's prejudice. I, I, I truly believe that they may not have some of the uh, necessities to uh, be, uh, let's say, a field manager or perhaps a, a general manager. You really believe that? Well... I don't say that they're all of them, but they certainly are short. How many quarterbacks do you have? How many pitchers do you have that are black? It, it yeah, same but thing I mean, you know, I got to tell you, that sounds like the same kind of garbage we were hearing 40 years ago. As he stumbled to explain himself, Campanis dug himself deeper. He said, why are black men, black people, not good swimmers? Because they don't have the buoyancy. Perhaps, replies the host, it's because of the lack of access to country clubs and pools instead. 36 years have passed since Campana said that Black players lack the necessities to become managers, the natural buoyancy. Today, there's only two Black managers out of 30 in the 2023 season. A study by Arizona State University's Global Sport Institute showed that between 1995 and 2021, Black MLB managers were still held to different standards than white ones. White managers, on average, had less coaching experience when they were hired. Black managers were dismissed more quickly from their positions and were more likely to have been fired. Campanus' remarks became his legacy that remains long after his death. Because hearing an executive say out loud something that Black athletes still felt in the air decades after Jackie Robinson, it touched a nerve. So in all that time since integration, how much progress has America really made? This is the question that many American institutions had to try to answer in 2020 after the killing of George Floyd, whether they wanted to or not. And baseball was no exception. Nine days after Floyd's death, MLB released a statement 
like everyone else. It had phrases like zero tolerance and committed to change. To be honest, after George Floyd, I wasn't even thinking about sports at first. Witnessing Floyd's murder on camera made me think about the question I always ask Grandma Nettie. What did Grandpa Turkey think about racism? She would always say, he just said, that's just the way things were. It took me a while to realize the layers that statement contained. He wasn't just throwing in the towel and saying, that's just life, there's nothing we can do about it. He was really saying that he knew what to expect and that he had to look inward in order to survive. One of the most unsettling things about being Black in America is that here in the present, we are still experiencing the hatred of the past. It's just modernized. Like Adam Jones, Grandpa Turkey knew to what extent baseball was a white man's sport. Just like he knew America was a white man's country. When MLB released its statement after George Floyd's murder, it felt hollow to me. So when a piece of unexpected news was announced in December of 2020, I was shocked. A big announcement from Major League Baseball today. It has reclassified the Negro Leagues as a major league. On December 16th, MLB announced that it would elevate Negro League stats to the level of Major League stats in the official record book. A hundred years after the Negro Leagues were first founded, MLB vowed that the stats that had been gathered and restored by researchers would be incorporated, integrated. Tell me how it felt to have the stats recognized. Well, they're not. This is Sean Gibson, Josh Gibson's great-grandson. We're both members of the Negro League Family Alliance, a group formed of descendants of Negro League players. Like me, he saw the MLB announcement and his jaw dropped. We had no idea MLB was considering this move, and we thought that finally, after all this time, progress would be made. But then, crickets. You can't make an announcement without going through with the announcement. And that's what, you know, as family members, I feel like we're kind of in limbo of what's going on because the announcement was so huge. And the announcement came at a, a time where African-Americans was upset because it, was, it came during the George Floyd killing right. that same year. And, you know, I had several reporters ask me, did I think MLB did this as a PR move? Um, and I said, well, I can't speak on behalf of Major League Baseball. You have to ask them that question, but I hope not. The Family Alliance was not included in the decision to recognize the stats. And for some, the details of the announcement were concerning. MLB vowed to take some of the stats, but not all. Play recorded within the leagues between 1920 and 1948 would be counted but no barnstorming records would be included. Once again, they drew a line in the sand. Some stats are worthy and others are not. I'll say this. When they made the announcement, I was excited. My phone was ringing off the hook because everybody thought now that Josh Gibson would be the home run king. 
Josh had over 800 home runs, but most of his home runs were during barnstorming and um, playing overseas. Uh, he was he only had like 327 in the Negro League, so he's not the home run king. Some say these barnstorming and overseas games are helpful data points because they still represent an athlete's ability on the field. Some say since they're not official, they can't be held as equal to major leaguers. Earlier in the series, you heard Kevin Johnson of Seamheads explain how difficult it's been for stats collectors to gather and quantify Negro Leagues data. Box scores for the Negro Leagues are not as easy to find or interpret as the records of the major leagues. But that's no reason not to count what we have either. It does mean that whatever stats MLB does include, they'll always be controversial. When they officially put the stats into Major League Records, there will be not just jobs, there will be several players from the Negro League that will be in the top 10, top 5 categories, and maybe some of one. What if, even by conservative estimates, the top 10 baseball greats are rewritten? Can baseball fans handle their idols being replaced overnight? If Turkey Stearns is suddenly a better player than Joe DiMaggio, are people ready to hear it? Who are you to tell us that we are now major leaguers? You know, um, we always considered our relatives as major leaguers. But now that they say we are major leaguers, well, then let's 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 show it. Let's show it. There are some players still living and they should be compensated, you know, with, with pensions. All the other major leaguers are benefiting from playing the major. So I feel like the families and the players who are still living should also benefit from that. The stats are complicated, but they're just one part of the puzzle. This is about treating Negro Leagues players like they are full equals to major leaguers of the past, present, and future. One of the main things the Family Alliance is asking MLB for directly is a Universal Negro Leagues Day on May 2nd of every year. That's the date of Rube Foster's first Negro League game of the season in 1920. We want fans who know nothing about the Monarchs or the Grays or the Detroit Stars to appreciate a history they may never have heard before. And not just the history of the teams, but also of the surviving Negro League players. Like Bill Greeson, who played for the Black Barons and later became a Baptist preacher in Alabama. Willie Mays, who is known for his major league record, but not for his Negro League origins. And Ron Teasley. After integration, Ron was almost selected to play on the Dodgers with Jackie Robinson. But Ron didn't make it to the majors. He always felt that there was an unofficial quota system in place. That no matter how good you were, they weren't willing to have too many Black players on their team. Ron wasn't eligible for a major league pension. But now that MLB has told the world that they consider Negro Leagues as major leagues, maybe now he can get what so many other players have taken as a given. Recognition. Appreciation. And quickly... Ron's 96 years old. It's time to give the man his flowers. We're past the centennial of the league's founding, and we're looking at it with new eyes. 
when we look back in a hundred years time, what do you think we'll see? Man, I hope my descendants are still celebrating Josh Gibson. That's first day. <laughs> <laughs> they will be. <laughs> right. You know, it's funny you said that because when a hundred years came up in 2020, we I couldn't believe it. But here we are celebrating something that happened a hundred years ago. And you know what Vanessa I should say is that it's a shame that here we are celebrating a hundred years and your grandfather and my great grandfather is probably looking down and saying, I can't believe that they're going through this still going through some of the same things that we went through a hundred years ago. So that is one of the things that I used to always talk about is how not too much has changed. In the nearly three years since the announcement, the silence from MLB has felt deafening. So earlier this year, when the Family Alliance was invited to a meeting with MLB, we had some questions. Two months before the meeting, the Alliance had announced the group's initiatives at a press conference. And this was an initial discussion to communicate them to MLB. In that meeting, Someone asked the MLB rep, can you provide us an update about when the Negro League stats will be included in the MLB records? The MLB rep looked around the table. Haven't we already done that, he said. When ABC asked MLB about this exchange, they said the rep was referring to the process created to complete an agreement for use of the Negro League stats. We had heard about this agreement, but not directly from MLB initially. Our sources told us about a possible agreement with data researchers, so we asked MLB about it. They told ABC that the reason we've been waiting so long is the result of negotiations between MLB and the data researchers. MLB said they spent time coming to an agreement that allows them to use the data on which their decision to elevate the stats was based. They also wanted to build a partnership with the experts who gathered it. They told us that the evaluation of this data is underway, but didn't give us a timeline or a target date for completion. Our sources also told us that some of them were asked to join a new committee MLB was putting together to review the stats. This committee would be made up of Negro League experts who have lived and breathed these stories for many decades. When we asked MLB about this committee, they said that after their December 2020 announcement, they wanted to handle the process with thoroughness and thoughtfulness. They confirmed that this committee does exist and that it has met several times already. As of the release of this podcast, there has been no public announcement acknowledging this committee of experts or the process of working with the data researchers. But it seems like 32 months since Commissioner Robert Manfred said that Negro Leagues are major leagues, MLB is now sifting through the data. Now, I've still got some questions, of course. And I tried to get them answered by the man who made that 2020 announcement in the first place. ABC asked MLB for an interview with the commissioner in April. And then again, 
in September. Our request was denied. Both times. So I'll ask a third time. Commissioner Manfred, the door is always open. If it sounds like I'm not happy about this progress, let me explain. It's not about MLB taking on this task. That's a promising step in the right direction. But the pace of this process is being dictated by MLB. And that feels familiar. When the leagues integrated in 1947, the decision wasn't made by Jackie. It wasn't even made by Branch Rickey. It was MLB's call at a time they decided was right. These stats of these Negro Leaguers exist because they were determined to play, even when the sport told them to quit. If MLB absorbs the stats without acknowledging their reason for existence, there's a risk that they whitewash that struggle. It seems paradoxical, but these stories may be lost by being brought to the surface. But just like integration in 1947, we have no choice but to play by the rules set by white baseball, even though it could erase us. It's a lot. I'm optimistic, but I'm watching MLB's next moves carefully. And I'm hoping they will not repeat the mistakes of the past. I'm not angry, but I'm disappointed and I'm fed up, okay? This is fed up in sign language. He said, this is my mom, Joyce. She taught deaf and hard of hearing students for 36 years. That's why she knows how she feels in sign language, too. I want them to step up to the plate and do the right thing, okay? So you kept these, them isolated and did not uh, afford them the opportunities that they deserve because they rightfully could play. They should have been major leaguers all the time, and now they're major leaguers. Make up for it and do the right thing. MLB will host a Negro Leagues tribute game at Rickwood Field in Alabama in 2024. But there's no league-wide initiative to honor Black baseball's contribution to the sport. Right now, some teams do and some teams don't. And in some respects, I'm lucky because my home team, the Tigers, does. They actually do something really special, and that's Negro Leagues weekend. This is where we started. With my mom and aunt on the field at Comerica Park on Negro Leagues weekend. When they were rehearsing, the stadium was empty. Now, the stadium is full. The Tigers are about to come onto the field in Detroit Stars uniforms. My nephew Jimmy has been invited to throw out the first pitch, and my whole family is gathered in the stands to watch. And even if people in the audience still don't fully understand the history the Tigers are honoring, it means a lot to have Grandpa's story front and center. When I'm singing the national anthem, I'm elated and thrilled. I feel, you know, 
rejuvenated or whatever. So whenever I perform, whatever I'm singing, I put my emotions and my heart into it. And it's to, to the people, you know, to pass on to them. And so, you know, they'll say the daughters of, you know, Rosalind Stearns Brown and Joyce Stearns Thompson, daughters of Norman Turkey Stern. And so that's a proud moment. So I'm singing that to honor him and the Negro Leaguers. This is a proud moment for me, too. My wife and I stand in the crowd on the warm summer night and watch the whole stadium pay attention to the daughters of a Negro League's legend. And Rosalind Stearns Brown, daughters of Negro League's great and National Baseball Hall of Fame member, Norman Turkey Stearns. Ladies and gentlemen, And when I'm standing there, I remember why I love this game. It's because we are our national pastime. It reflects us and all our rules and biases and complications and in the ways we try to be better. In the past, it has reflected our division. Today, it represents our progress, however slow or frustrating. Maybe that's what makes it our national sport. It's this mirror that has shown us, through our history, who we are in that moment. And maybe one day, we'll look at our reflection and we'll all like what we see. Reclaimed, The Forgotten League, is an original production of ABC Audio. Hosted by me, Vanessa Ivy Rose. This episode was written by Madeline Wood. The series was produced by Madeline Wood, Cameron Chertavian, Eru Ekpenobi, Camille Peterson, and Amira Williams. Our senior producers on this project were Susie Liu and Lakia Brown. Music and scoring by Evan Viola. A big shout-out to our ABC Audio team, Liz Alessi, Josh Cohan, Ariel Chester, Sasha Aslanian, Marwa Mawaki, Audrey Mostek, and Aaron Ferrer. Special thanks to Chris Donovan, Rick Klein, Eric Fiel, Anthony Fanick, Mara Bush, and of course, my mom, Joyce Stearns Thompson, and my aunt, Rosalind Stearns Brown. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.